Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Politics in Alberta, where I am, it's been a very interesting and dramatic week. Honestly, it's been a very interesting and dramatic few months here in the province of Alberta. Jason Kenney, maybe one of the most prominent conservative politicians in the entire country, looks to be coming to an end of his time as premier of Alberta. Certainly a remarkable turnaround from what he accomplished previously in returning to Alberta, uniting two conservative parties, winning the leadership of that new party, winning a majority in the 2019 general election. This week, we learned the results of the leadership review, which had been precipitated by unrest within the party. Uh, Initially, was supposed to be an in-person vote, turned into a mail-in ballot vote. So thousands and thousands of party members voted and a very bare majority, 51 percent, voted in favor of Jason Kenney's leadership. Now, this is the membership of his own party. This is his own base. Very underwhelming. And I think the premier realized that Jason Kenney announcing on Wednesday that he would be stepping down as leader, but he has not yet resigned. In fact, Jason Kenney is going to stay on as leader and as premier until a new leader is chosen. Now, speaking on the Alberta program, your province, your premier earlier today, uh, Jason Kenney was asked about the possibility of him running in that leadership race. No. And uh, if that was the case, I would I would have stepped down as leader uh, earlier this week um, because so I'm I'm focused on uh, continuity and stability, doing the people's business, focusing on priorities. Well, stay tuned, folks. I think there's going to be more twists and turns in that segment. Joining us to talk about the latest on uh, politics in Alberta, what was certainly a a fascinating week. Very pleased to welcome to the program here today, Dwayne Bratt, political science professor and chair, Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies, Mount Royal University in Calgary. Dwayne Bratt, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Good to speak with you. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, you're a veteran observer of Alberta politics, uh, and we've seen some some drama in Alberta politics, and we've had uh, numerous premiers resign or not make it uh, to the next election or lose re-election, but um, maybe nothing quite like this. Uh, I would agree with that. I mean, um, Wednesday night was <laughs> was pretty dramatic, and when you listen to the speech again, you realize it's a victory speech with a couple words of resignation, because I don't think he had prepared a second speech. I think he he thought he was going to win with enough of a majority to keep going. And he only got 51.4. And I think that was one of the reasons that the results came out late was this discussion behind the scenes about what he what he should do. It is a remarkable rise and fall. When you think about the Jason Kenney rolling back into Alberta in 2016 um, with his plan on, on uniting the right here in, here in Alberta, senior cabinet minister, strong portfolio, 
seen as the kingmaker in conservative circles. He was the architect of the UCP. Uh, yeah, there were other people involved, but I don't think you would have seen the creation of the UCP when it happened without the energy and skills and organization of, of Jason Kenney. I, I don't think there's any doubt on that. Then he wins a big majority. He calls it the biggest mandate in Alberta history, but he's viewing that simply on a vote toll. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, the population of Alberta had decreased. But again, he, he wins, uh, takes a, a party that was in opposition, forms a majority government. He is at the top of his game. And it's almost like the moment the election is over, things start to go sideways. COVID, obviously, is the major story here. But his popularity was starting to decline before COVID, uh, and COVID just exacerbated it. And then he doesn't even finish his term in office, and he is gone. Just like every conservative premier in this province for almost 20 years, the only premier to fulfill a term was Rachel Notley, and then she was defeated in 2019. Right. The last premier to be reelected was Ralph Klein. And of course, we've had numerous premiers in Alberta since then. Yeah. It is fascinating to me. And, and Duane, we're going to be talking later on the program about the situation in Ontario. They're going to the polls on June 2nd, and it's entirely possible, maybe even likely Doug Ford will be reelected with a majority in Saskatchewan. Scott Moe sitting at over 50 percent approval. He's just watched his opposition go through this. So the leader of the Saskatchewan NDP has just resigned. And, and yet here's Jason Kenney, who was so supposed to be kind of the leader of them all. And and, and he's out, or so it seems. Uh, how do we explain that when we see where Scott Moe is at or where Doug Ford is at? So on his radio show earlier today, Kenney's explanation was that he was too tolerant of dissent within his own caucus. Both Doug Ford and Scott Moe took quick action and removed MLAs who were countering the, the COVID message. Um, mm-hmm. Kenny did not until Todd Lowen and, and Drew Barnes were removed. But even after he removed those two, there was just open revolt within his caucus. Now, that's Kenny's personal interpretation, and his friends are promoting that as well. I think there were other issues with his leadership. So you look at Doug Ford. Doug Ford had a very rocky first year. And what did he do? He fired his chief of staff, Dean French, and he started to listen more. Um, the opposition to Kenny was that he wasn't listening. There were MLAs who didn't even have a real conversation with Kenny in three years. And there's only, you know, 60 of them. It's not like there's 6,000 of them, that it was too combative, too top heavy. Um, and so that was a different style than what we saw with Mo and with, with Ford. I would throw another variable in, and that's the structural nature of conservatives in Alberta, which are fundamentally different um, from Ontario. And that is um, a quickness to revolt, to splinter off. Um, And and this didn't just start with Wild Rose or after the formation of the UCP. You go back to the Western Canada concept in the early 1980s. The Alberta Alliance in the early 2000s. And so I think there's a structural issue with conservatism in Alberta that is different than Ontario. And it's tough to keep that group together. And that explains the transformation of of leaders that we haven't seen in Ontario, that we we don't see in Saskatchewan. But that churn of conservative leaders here, uh, you know, pushing Don Getty out, Ralph Klein comes in, 
Ralph Klein gets pushed out. Ed Stelmack comes in. Stelmack gets pushed out. Redford comes in. Redford gets pushed out. Prentice comes in. Prentice loses. Now Kenny's pushed out. We don't see that with Mike Harris. We didn't see that with Brad Wall. We don't see that with Scott Moe. We don't see that with Doug Ford. It's interesting, and maybe it's unlikely that pattern's going to change, assuming uh, this party elects somebody other than Jason Kenney to lead it. Uh, these issues may not I, go I, away. I think the revolt within the party will calm down for a couple months because mm-hmm. the lightning rod has made his intention known that he is leaving, right? What's the point of continuing to attack Jason Kenney when there's a leadership race going on? But once a new leader comes in, they're going to represent one or more of the factions that make up the the UCP, meaning they're going to be opposed by other factions. Then I can see the splintering occurring, not today, but right after the leadership race in September or October. So Kenny has opted to stay on. The party will not have an interim leader uh, because he doesn't technically resign. It doesn't automatically trigger a leadership race, so the party can take its time with that. We don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, Jason Kenny did say today, he did say the word no when asked about the possibility of running in that leadership race. As they say in politics, no often means maybe. I can envision a scenario, Dwayne, where, you know, the message is I didn't want to. People are begging me to for the sake of the party. Maybe I need to. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm just getting too used to the drama. But did you foresee any kind of scenario here where Jason Kenney uh, goes for that unthinkable political resurrection? Never. <laughs> never say never in politics. <laughs> I mean, uh, Brian Jean retired from politics and came back. Daniel Smith retired from politics, and she's running for the leadership. So here's here's the scenario that would match up with that. Let's say the the board sets up a timeline, sets up a process. We we know we've got Smith and Jean. No cabinet minister steps up. And it's now six weeks later. And is there now a draft Kenny that only Kenny can be the person to stop Gene and, and Smith? That is a possibility. I don't think it's good for the province because of all the turmoil we've just had. I, I would prefer a cleaner break. Um, and I think it would be better if there were five or six ministers plus Smith, plus Gene, maybe a few other outsiders and having a robust discussion about the future of conservatism and the future of the province of Alberta Having the return and resurrection of Jason Kenney, I think, just adds to the drama, which would be great for your business. <laughs> Maybe not so <laughs> Tell great me about for it. Yeah, and it's interesting, though, when you look at conservatism nationally, the federal conservatives obviously going through a leadership race. Um, but, you know, a couple of years ago, it, it seemed like... You know, Jason Kenney was maybe the most important conservative in the country, you know, casting a shadow over the federal conservative leader. Now, Kenney seems on his way out. Maybe this is Pierre Polyev's uh, ascension. It, it, it's sort of um, a, a shakeup, isn't it, when it comes to conservatism more broadly oh, in this country, it feels I like. I was at an event in, in 2018. So Kenney is still opposition leader. And Andrew Scheer is the federal conservative leader. This is prior to the 2019 election. Scott Moe is the sitting premier of Saskatchewan, Darren Billis, who was the economic minister for the Notley government, all of those were on the same stage, and Kenny outshone them all. He was the most powerful conservative by far in 2018, Mm -hmm. even though he didn't hold a premier position, a cabinet position, a prime ministerial position. He is not in that position right now. 
And that is a dramatic fall from, from where he was only a couple of years ago. The federal conservatives are going through something. All the dissension and the factions uh, within the conservative family in Alberta that I just mentioned, those are magnified at the federal level. Uh, Stephen Harper was able to unify that party, was able to hold it together. But Andrew Scheer wasn't. Aaron O'Toole wasn't. And um, you're seeing a big divide um, within the conservative leadership race right now, just between Polyev and Sheree. Both of them believe the other person doesn't even belong in the party. So uh, I don't know how you reconcile that. I don't know whoever wins the federal leadership, how they keep that federal party together. I think at this point, it's safe to say that uh, Vladimir Putin has not achieved what he intended to achieve when he invaded Ukraine, both in terms of what he's achieved on the ground or failed to achieve on the ground in Ukraine. And in terms of the international response, the way the international community has rallied with meaningful sanctions against Russia. And as we were just talking about the way in which Putin has kind of inadvertently unified and strengthened the NATO alliance. But it's been a series of setbacks on the ground in Ukraine for Vladimir Putin. Now, perhaps to some extent, maybe we overestimated the strength of the Russian military, but perhaps we also underestimated the resolve in the bravery of Ukrainians. I think certainly the international community, led by the United States and other allies, has played an important role in ensuring that Ukrainians were equipped to take the fight to the Russians, but take the fight to the Russians they have. And Russia envisioned Kiev toppling in just days. That didn't happen. That hasn't happened. Uh, Kiev remains in, in Ukrainian hands. And now it appears Kharkiv does as well, the second largest Ukrainian city where Russian forces have been pushed back. Russia, though, has been scrambling to regain some of that territory around Kharkiv. There was a missile strike on the city this week. Uh, Of course, we do know that Mariupol uh, remains in Russian hands and just how utterly devastated uh, that city has been and the people there as a result of the uh, Russian offensive. Well, somebody who's been in Ukraine for weeks and has been telling some remarkable stories about the situation there is a journalist, photographer, digital content producer, Adam Zivo. AdamZivo.com is his website. He is in Kharkiv. Uh, so can tell us firsthand about what's been happening there. And from what I understand today, can also tell us firsthand about some of the dangers uh, that are still present in that city. AdamZivo.com is the website. Adam, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, obviously, well, look, you've had an interesting day. Uh, it's it's late, late into the evening on Saturday where you are. And we can touch on that. But um, you're in, in Kharkiv, which is, I believe, Ukraine's second largest city. Russian forces have been pushed back from Kharkiv, which, uh, you know, certainly represents some progress. But there was a missile strike there a couple of days ago. What, what's the situation in that city, first of all? Well, the situation varies by neighborhood to neighborhood. So you have to keep in mind that this city was shelled up until about two, three weeks ago. Uh, when the Ukrainians began to push the Russians back. So up until that point, even if you were in the center of Kharkiv, you were basically in danger. People were living in metro stations to prevent themselves from being killed. No one was outside. Everyone was empty. Most of the streets were filled with military folk. Now that's changed because the Russians have been pushed back, and so they can only shell the northern parts of the city and the suburbs there and some of the villages there. So the downtown core is beginning to go back to life. 
metro stations are now being uh, restored and used for transportation again. The refugees that have stayed there are being evicted. Uh, unfortunately, they are being offered hostels slash hotel rooms, which is great. Um, but you're essentially seeing a city which is very, very, very carefully reviving. But that's if you're in downtown Kharkiv. If you're in the northern parts, it's very different, and that's very dangerous depending on where you go. Well, speaking of danger, and I mean, you, you had a, a close call today and, you know, obviously we're, we're certainly glad you're OK. But I mean, it speaks to, you know, where there is still that that danger. I mean, what, what can you tell us and our audience about uh, what happened to you today? Well, I'm going to be really frank with you. I was almost murdered today and I'm going to say that I'm not a fan of that experience. I no. wouldn't ex- I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Uh, so I, I joined a group called Mission Kharkiv. I've documented them before for the Ottawa Citizen, and they're a group that delivers medication to chronically ill people in the area, mostly cancer patients, diabetics, people with uh, high blood pressure. And so I was there, and I received uh, level four body armor as a gift from another contact this day. And they said, hey, we're going to deliver some medication to a village that was recently liberated and is by the front lines. And I said, sure, why not? You know, we had a military escort that gave me a helmet. And so we uh, we took a car there, two cars, one car filled with you know soldiers, one car filled with uh, humanitarian aid uh, workers. There was uh, an abuelita, you know, some Spanish NGO workers, older women, very endearing. And on our way there, uh, we stopped by a bridge, and the bridge had been blown up by the Ukrainians to prevent the Russians from advancing further. And we're taking photos of the bridge, and then. We've been hearing uh, explosions throughout the day, like thunderstorms. And it's always in the distance. It's artillery. And then we hear an explosion, and it's very, very close. Uh, It sounds like it's coming from the trees next to me. And the soldiers are screaming, get in the car, get in the car, get in the car. And we get in the car. We drive away as fast as we can. And uh, based on what the soldiers say, because we are the only possible target in the area, the only inference is that the soldiers were uh, targeting us specifically, that they were trying to kill us. And they missed, which is great. You know, I would like to keep my limbs. I would like to keep my life. Yeah. And uh, then we're going afterwards. We're going to a village and uh, we're slightly farther away. And we stop by a humanitarian center. And that was where uh, a bunch of people from a nearby village had been evacuated to the previous week. And then it was bombed. And I was talking to my contact there and he was telling me about how, you know, when it was bombed, only seven people died, but other people got injured. So apparently there were legs and arms strewn everywhere, which, you know, it's a horrible thing to hear. And then there was another explosion. And I looked, and, and like when, when I say explosion, it's like it's an explosion you can feel in your bones. You can hear deep inside your head. It goes through you. And I looked, and 200 meters away, there was a plume of smoke. And, uh, and, and we just suddenly, we hid. We hid as much as we could behind trees, um, behind, uh, behind rubble. And I was recording all of this because recording interviews. So I have, you know, all the audio, which is crazy. You know, you hear yourself running away from an explosion. And uh, and then once again, we booked it. You know, we uh, we got into the car. We drove away as fast as we could. 
and then we got back to uh, the soldier's office and then we had we had some shots we had some <laughs> drinks to celebrate life and friendship and now here i am uh, alive which is great uh slightly stressed uh, but very very glad to be alive well, yeah, and, and obviously, yeah, I mean, certainly we're, we're glad to hear that. I mean, it, it obviously speaks to the dangers in, in you know, being there and, and telling these stories. And, and I mean, that's, you know, that you, I guess, you know, that's part of the risk involved in, in being there. And, and you've made a point of being there, wanting to tell these stories uh, and understand really what's going on there. Talk about that side of it from your perspective and why it's so important that, that you and others be there to chronicle what's happening. And, and you know, even though there is some risk involved. There's been a lot of misinformation about this war, and that's a major uh, front in a sense, right? This information warfare aspect to it. Uh, there have been people who have painted Ukrainians as being the villains in this case, as being Nazis or being hyper-nationalists, as uh, being evil people. And my entire time that I've been here, you know, I'm, I'm a gay guy who writes about LGBTQ issues. I'm sensitive to you know, minority issues and minority rights. Yeah. And what I found in Ukraine is a country which has been remarkably open, uh, more so than I expected, uh, a country which is getting more and more European with every year. And it's something that I think is amazing. And what I want to do being here is to chronicle the actual experiences of people here and show the brutality of this war and to show what's at stake. Because what's at stake here is an Eastern European country which is embracing European values, which is embracing inclusiveness, which is looking forward towards an inclusive future, uh, which might be conquered and have its culture destroyed by, I mean, some tin pot despot. So I want people to understand that this is not some hypothetical situation. It's not a video game. It's not uh, just lines on a map. This is real people. And they're fighting for their lives, and they can die, and they need to be supported, and they need to be protected. That's the thing. And we can hear these stories about, you know, progress, setbacks. I mean, obviously, uh, the Battle of Kiev w was a remarkable victory for Ukrainians. Pushing the, U the Russians uh, out of our Kiev is, has been a, a remarkable victory. But as you say, there, there's a human toll. There's a cost. There's an impact. And that's that side of that story that really needs to be highlighted, right? I mean, it's not just what Ukrainians are accomplishing, but the way in which they're doing so, the price they're paying for doing so. It's, it's quite a human story. Well, let, let me give you a story from today which illustrates the human impact. The woman who was driving me was like a 50-something-year-old 50, 50 mom. You know, she's, <laughs> uh, she's the kind of person where you would expect to be at a bake sale. Yeah. And she was driving us through a war-torn country through shelling and bombs because her sons live in Kharkiv, and they're working with Mission Kharkiv to pack medication for chronically ill people. She and her husband live in Geneva. They live in Switzerland. They're safe. But she chose to live in Kharkiv. She can't, chose to stay in Kharkiv to support her sons uh, to make sure that they would be safe together with her. And together, they're fighting to keep people alive. Right? This is, this is not a question of numbers. You know, this is not a question of abstract figures. These are, this is a, a plethora, an uncountable number of real human stories with real human suffering. And if there's something that I want people to take away from my coverage is that these are people, like the people you see around you, 
and they may be in a different part of the world, but that doesn't make their suffering any more, any less important. You know, we've been hearing some and seeing some some pretty awful images and stories uh, out of Mariupol and, and the devastation and destruction there. So, you know, that speaks to the challenges that lie ahead. This conflict is far from over. Um, but, I mean, do, do you get a sense of, of optimism at all, Adam, about where this is all going? What, what's your sense of where things are at? There's optimism. People think that they're going to win the war. The Ukrainians are, they feel fairly certain of that. It's a question of when. So, the areas just north of Kiev were liberated. Kharkiv is being liberated. The the Russians are being pushed back to the borders around Kharkiv. But Mariupol is defeated and it's been subjugated now. And um, the south is continuing to be subjugated. Kherson is uh, basically being ethnically cleansed at this point. Um, and so there's this sense that, okay, there's a momentum, but it's not fast enough. And people in southern Ukraine are suffering. Um, and so there's an urgency to get back to normal life and to try to liberate Ukrainians in south and eastern Ukraine as fast as possible and to not concede this territory because to, conceding, to concede this territory would be to consign these people to uh, hell. Um, and so that's a general attitude, a sort of uh, an angry optimism. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Advanced polls are open in Ontario. June 2nd is Election Day in Canada's largest province. Canadians outside of Ontario could be forgiven for not being aware that there's an election underway in Ontario. As our next guest argues, though, for even voters in Ontario, this election is staying below the radar. It's been a pretty quiet and low-key election in as far as elections go. Maybe that bodes well for Doug Ford and his Ontario PC party looking to be reelected with another majority. Uh, the polls uh, so far do indicate that the PCs are headed to a victory, uh, but there is still time for that to change. So why has this been such a low-key election? What are the stakes here for the leaders, though, the leaders of the three main parties in Ontario? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on the campaign and uh, how it's unfolded so far, certainly a veteran himself of some Ontario election campaigns, uh, Andrew Tumulty is a senior consultant for strategic and uh, communication and issues management with Enterprise Canada based in Toronto. As an interesting piece on this, you can read it at the uh, Substack newsletter, The Line, theline.substack.com. Andrew, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, I mean, you know, we'll talk about Ontario's election here, obviously, but some political drama in Ontario. Isn't it fascinating that we got a situation where it looks as though uh, Jason Kenney's not going to to even make it to the next election? And here we have Doug Ford uh, poised for re-election. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if we could all go back to uh, 2019 for a moment and, and you were to tell me that, you know, Jason Kenney and Doug Ford uh, in a few years, one of them wouldn't finish out his first term and the other would be comfortably leading in the polls in an election. I don't know that too many people would have uh, would have picked Jason to be the one that, uh, that didn't finish. 
Well, and obviously there's a whole other story about how Jason Kenney got to that point. But let's talk about how Doug Ford got to this point. Right. And, uh, you know, I think people outside of Ontario, uh, you know, and then going back to, to the past, had an idea, maybe a, a repu- you know, there was a reputation that preceded Doug Ford. But why is he in a position here, do you think, that, uh, you know, re-election, another majority government seems, you know, not just possible, but maybe likely? Well, I think uh, I think there's quite a few factors that come into place. I mean, historically, uh, in Ontario, most governments um, are are reelected, right? Everybody everybody sort of does get at least one extra kick at the can. Um, I think there's probably an understanding um, that the last <coughs> two years were were a specific challenge. Um, and while I think there's a lot of disagreements to be had about how the Ontario government um, handled aspects of the pandemic, um, I think overall in the general public, you know, people are. Are ready to move on. So if this election had been, say, six months to a year, year ago, his pandemic record might have been um, a bigger challenge facing him. Um, but the fact is that it isn't. And I think there's a general sentiment where people are ready to move forward. I think the other advantage he, that he does have working for him um, is that Andrea Horvath uh, has been the NDP leader since 2009, uh, since before there was Netflix in Canada, just as a a bit of a um, context for your listeners. Um, and in that time, you know, she's, she's lost three elections. Uh, this is her fourth year. Um, so the opposition there isn't as strong as it could be. And um, at the same time, Stephen Del Duca is, is relatively new. He, he won the liberal leadership sort of at the outset of the pandemic, which, which presented a great challenge uh, for him and his team in, in terms of introducing him to the voters. You know, the other contrast with Alberta, obviously, you see Jason Kenney with a lot of infighting, a lot of party dissent. And Doug Ford's had those issues. There's been some MPPs he's had to deal with. But on the whole, it seems like the Ontario PC party is more or less united behind Doug Ford. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, I think that's a fair assessment now. Um, when you talk about the infighting, I think what, what's really particularly interesting for me going into the campaign when I look at some of the numbers is that Ford was elected in uh, 2018 with a fairly comfortable majority of, of 76 MPPs. Um, over the course of his term, um, <clears throat> they had people resign from politics altogether. They had people that were dismissed from the caucus out of, out of ideological differences uh, or people who quit ca- caucus. So that by the time the election rolled out, uh, he was down to 67 um, MPPs from the original 76. And, and of those, several are not running. Um, so he, he actually goes into the election with only 56 incumbent MPPs in his caucus, which mm-hmm. is less than what you need for a majority. Um, so I, I don't think the divisions have been quite as stark as, as what we've seen in Alberta, uh, but there certainly have been some. And it's one of the more interesting numbers uh, as we head into this campaign that may that may play a bigger role. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting in, in that sense, too. I mean, uh, and, and you look at the lay of the land, and we'll talk a bit about why this has been a quiet campaign, but uh, who Doug Ford is up against. I mean, Andrea Horath, as you mentioned, you know, and, and there was a time in the last election where it seemed that maybe she was going to emerge as, as the prime minister, but the NDP fell off. I don't know that they've been as much of a factor. The liberals have a long history of, of governing the province of Ontario. But what is it about Stephen Del Duca that's maybe, I don't know, not connecting? Uh, I think a lot of it is, is an awareness issue. You know, to be fair, everybody in the last two years has, has had more on their their minds um, than than politics, yeah. <clears throat> and and we we've seen that. You know, it's it's difficult to go out. Typically, after a leader's elected to a party, you know, there's there's a, a tour effort that's made, lots of local stops to introduce them to the voters at that level, um, and he hasn't had that opportunity. And I, I, I think we're probably seeing some of the impact as well. 
of the fact that he doesn't have a seat uh, in the legislature currently, right? So he didn't have that opportunity to shine there either. But what I think will be interesting to find out is, because I think in the, in the leaders debate this week, people got a good introduction to him. We saw trending that showed him as a, a top Google search uh, among the leaders by quite a wide margin while the debate was going on. Um, but I think what will be interesting to see is if that actually kind of works to his advantage, right? Both Doug Ford and Andrea Horvath are quite well-known commodities to Ontario voters. Um, so having someone that they're not entirely familiar with yet and have a chance to get to know might actually turn out to be an advantage for him. But would you say the stakes are lower for Stephen Del Duca? Like which of the two is better positioned to survive a PC majority here? Oh, I, yeah, I, I, I would think the stakes uh, out of all three leaders really are, are quite lower in a sense uh, for Del Duca. Um, looking at the polling, looking at the trends, uh, I, I think it's a relatively um, safe assumption that the Liberals are going to go from seven seats to you know triple that, maybe even mm-hmm. maybe even more. Uh, in one election, and, and right off the bat, that's that's a bit of a win for him. It's, it's not out of the question that he goes from a party that doesn't have official standing to being leader of the opposition. Um, so I think the, that in that sense, you know, he, he's coming into this uh, with the easiest road to what would be considered a successful campaign. Whether or not it's a winning campaign is different, but in terms of what defines success for each party, I think he's got the easiest road. Horvath, you, you have to assume that this is going to be her last shot at things. Um, they're polling in third place. Uh, in areas where they're usually typically stronger, they're not just in third place, but they're down in the low 20s in Toronto and in the surrounding uh, suburbs. So it's not looking good for her right now. And, and I think a win is the only thing that saves her job. Uh, and even Ford, um, you know, he's looking good. He has a comfortable lead and it's, it's going pretty well for him so far. But he is down a few points uh, from where he was in the popular vote when they won a majority. Both parties have, have made it sort of clear that they wouldn't support a Ford minority government. Right. You know, if polling continues to tip down just a few points, he could be looking at a minority rather than a majority. Um, and then that becomes a challenge for him. You know, you wrote about this uh, this week for the uh, newsletter, The Line. And, you know, you made the argument that, look, uh, a quiet campaign is probably good news for the incumbent in this sense, uh, you know, Doug Ford and, and the PC. So let's talk a bit about, you know, why it seems so quiet and I guess what the opposition parties can do to kind of raise the, the volume, raise the temperature. Well, I think it, it, it's tough to say. It's always it's always tricky to get it out into the the public mindset, if you're if you're somebody like me that, that, that lives and agrees with this every day, right. and, and not everybody pays as much attention. Um, so, you know, people people are busy. People are coming out of what's been a very trying uh, two years for people in this province and indeed across the country, um, and, and may not have the appetite for, for paying attention um, to politics on, on the scale that you might expect. Um, there's a lot of competing news coverage. Uh, for what's going on in the world, you know, uh, including the ongoing issues that are happening with the pandemic. So it, it's not entirely shocking that um, that this hasn't sort of re- registered on the, the public's radar. But, you know, there are there are still a little over two weeks to go. So that's that's something that can change. Um, we like to say that a week is an eternity in politics. And there's, there's two weeks left in this campaign. So I suppose we'll have to see. Right. And I mean, but does that suggest that voters are, are happy? Voters are content? I mean, it's it's very interesting economic times where maybe on the surface, you know, unemployment's low, the, the GDP growth is strong, but inflation's running hot. You know, we've seen some rough days on the stock market. There seems like there's a lot of maybe economic unease, but that doesn't seem to be translating into, uh, you know, discontent in the Ontario electorate yet. 
Yeah, you're not you're not seeing. I, I think the two sort of connect at at this point. Um, I, you know, I, I I think it is right. You, you do see if something's defined as a change election, which 2018 in, in Ontario clearly was, or 2015 was in, in the federal sense, you do tend to see a higher profile, higher engagement, higher involvement um, from the public, and, and we haven't sort of seen that sort of impact so far. Uh, whether or not again that changes in the, in the next couple of weeks will will be interesting, um, but. You know, it, that's that's the when you think about the voters is they get to decide what's important to them. And I think one of the other considerations is that when we've seen um, polling on individual issues, you know, affordability, to your point, and, and cost of living is something that comes up pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. And that may be what's working against, you know, people being engaged uh, in the election as a whole, right? If I'm, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, I, I don't have a lot of time necessarily to worry about speeches and polls and, and punditry and that kind of thing. You know, my focus is on the price of gas or, or, or the price of bread. And I've certainly seen, I mean, anecdotally, social media and elsewhere, progressives in Ontario, you know, frustrated that, you know, the PCs could potentially be reelected here, frustrated that the other parties can't get their act together. You know, obviously, the NDP and the Liberals, you know, have their own long history in Ontario. The Liberals governed for a long time in in a more or less three-party system. So I don't know if any kind of talk of uniting the left is ever going to happen in Ontario. Maybe progressive voters wait to see who, who emerges as maybe the most likely you know, party to challenge the PCs. Maybe we see a big shift from the NDP to the Liberals as we get closer to Election Day. But what do you see down the road in terms of those kinds of conversations, maybe cooperation in a minority government situation, maybe something else that, that sort of shifts the, the dynamic in Ontario? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I certainly think that at, at some point, if you're looking at a minority situation, that, that there could be some um, understanding or cooperation between the parties. Uh, anything more than formal than that, though, I think is a bit of a long shot. You know, Andrea Horvath has spent as much of this campaign attacking Stephen Del Duca as she has um, Doug Ford, and uh, that would be a problem to say the least. Um, but even beyond that, when you look at Ontario sort of in a regional sense, you know, there are several ridings um, across the province where it's a it's a two-way race but it's not between the liberals or conservatives or the liberals and the ndp it, it is between the the pcs and the ndp when i think about southwestern ontario some of the ridings up north um so there are regional strengths to each party that i think would probably preclude any kind of um, formal arrangement from, from coming through in growing concern about monkeypox and a real mystery to solve here There are now five cases of this confirmed in Canada, in Montreal. Uh, There are still others suspected. There are now uh, 80 confirmed cases in 12 countries, and and those numbers are expected to grow. Uh, Monkeypox has been around for some time. It is still endemic in some African countries, and we do see from time to time uh, cases, most linked to travel, obviously, uh, happen in, in other countries. But this situation seems odd. Why are we seeing so many cases at the same time in so many countries? Outbreaks in different countries that do not seem related to each other. Are there some specific circumstances that we don't just yet understand? Is there something going on with this virus that we don't yet fully understand? So some big questions to be answered, which will obviously help us understand then what happens next, where all of this is going. Experts say the risk of another pandemic is low. But we really need to understand what's going on here. The good news is that we do have a, a vaccine arsenal, the smallpox vaccine, which, you know, has certainly fallen out of common use, is still very effective against monkeypox. It was another vaccine developed in 2019. Further to that, 
Uh, there's the added benefit of uh, vaccination post-exposure still having an impact. So that can help in, in deal with cases. Uh, Canadian health officials addressing all of this yesterday. Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, uh, says there's still a lot we don't yet know about these Canadian cases. We understand from other countries that are reporting cases that the current monkeypox strain or clade, if you like, is the West African clade. Uh, we have not yet uh, confirmed that in Canada. Um, it would also depend on some of the quality of the specimens that we get. So, um, but we will provide that information as soon as we have it. Uh, meanwhile, Deputy Public Health uh, Officer Dr. Howard News says yeah, that, look, the risk remains low, but there is still a lot of uh, susceptibility in the general population. I think, you know, if you're looking at monkeypox and the fact that it's, it belongs to the same family as smallpox, you know, as we uh, said earlier, you know, uh, you know, smallpox was eradicated in 1980 in terms of, you know, vaccination campaigns. I think in Canada, it stopped in the early 70s. And so I would say generally that the entire population uh, is, is susceptible to this, uh, to, to monkeypox. Well, joining us to, to help us better understand what this disease is that we're talking about here, what we know about monkeypox, what, what it does to, to the human body, what we know about the risks, and some of the lingering questions about what's led to this current situation. Uh, someone who's very familiar with this disease, Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, is Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging Viruses at the University of Manitoba, where he's also an Assistant Professor of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, it's always uh, entertaining to talk about the virus that I cut my eye teeth on in the uh, in the high containment lab. So, yeah, well, you're uh, the guy to, to unfortunately talk to. no. <laughs> okay, so we call it monkeypox because it was identified, I, I think, amongst maybe lab monkeys. That that's where there's a connection. But we've known about this this virus for for decades now, right? Yeah, so it was first identified uh, in in, uh, in non-human primates uh, in 1958, but the, the first human case wasn't identified until 1970. Now, what we got to appreciate though with that is this is still a time period in an area of the world where smallpox was certainly still still moving around in in communities. So we we don't know necessarily when monkeypox first emerged in humans, but it, it has continued to be a problem in one of endemic proportions. Uh, in uh, in areas uh, in Central and West Africa. So it is a disease that, that can spread from animal to human, but it's also obviously a disease that can spread from, from human to human. So uh, it, it sounds like it's not as transmissible, obviously, as, as COVID, um, but talk a bit more about how it's transmitted and, and how serious yeah. it can be. Yeah, so there's a couple things to keep in mind, right? So we, we, we always compare it back to obvious, uh, obviously variola virus, which is uh, the causal agent of, of smallpox in which we eradicated uh, by, by 1980. So th there's a couple of differences, right? Same, same family of viruses, uh, the, the uh, pox viridae family of viruses. Um, the difference is that smallpox was exclusively found in humans, uh, which you know, really for 3,000 years, this virus was able to subsist just through human-to-human -human transmission and did so unbelievably well. Monkeypox, quite different, right? So. There, there certainly is human-to-human -human transmission. Um, that is predominantly through close contact. Uh, so, you know, respiratory droplets, you know, between people that are, uh, are you know, within face-to-face -face contact for long periods of time and, and likely as well through through touch uh, and obviously through, uh, through through the pustules that, that we see on, on people's skin. But there is this other aspect of people that can get infected um, from rodents. So rodents in, in uh, Central Africa um, certainly can harbor the virus. And then, of course, in 2003, 
we saw the virus uh, emerge in the Midwest and the U.S. from movement of uh, infected uh, animals that, that came from Africa into prairie dogs and then prairie dogs into humans. So it's interesting. Some of the initial symptoms of monkeypox, as I understand, could overlap a little bit with with COVID symptoms, but it obviously it, it presents itself differently in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the amount of time, the incubation period. And then obviously what's notable about about this, similar, I guess, to smallpox are are the blisters, right? The way it manifests yeah. itself that way. Yeah, and you know this is always the scourge of of certainly emerging viruses and uh, and many of the uh, the infectious diseases that, that we consider global health threats is when you look at those early symptoms of disease, they're fairly common or held in common across each other, right? So when we look at early stages uh, of Ebola, those those initial symptoms they often are referred to as influenza-like because they present with fever, fever and general uh, malaise and lethargy and and fatigue, but we see this commonly across other diseases too but you know as we you know see progression in that disease things change and obviously with uh with pox viruses whether it's monkey pox vaccinia cow pox and obviously the the now eradicated smallpox that has a very physical appearance uh that that uh, we see or a very physical stage that we see with it so let's talk about what's going on right now. And, and we've had cases yeah. in the past that have shown up in other countries. There are some countries where, you know, this is persistent or endemic. But it, it, this situation now where we've got outbreaks in different countries that don't seem to be connected to one another, this seems very unusual. What, what do you make of what we know so far? Good question, right? So there's a couple of things that, that I kind of appreciate when, when I'm thinking about this. One is, um, you know, certainly we've always been concerned about the fact that, that cases could, uh, could move out of areas where, uh, where, where there's already, uh, endemic, um, endemic presence of this virus. And we've seen travel related cases in the past. And there's always been, um, that, uh, you know, those discussions and those warnings about trying to ensure that people understand the, uh, the concerns regarding close contact and reporting any, any sort of symptoms of illness if they've been into one of these regions where it's endemic. Um, this is a little bit different because we're starting to see not only those, you know, those potential travel related cases, but also, you know, signs of local transmission. That means the virus has now moved beyond just the person that, uh, that, that arrived in that location, but it's now starting to move into the population. And of course, in the background of this, one thing we have to appreciate, smallpox vaccine did wonders, helped us eradicate one of you know, the worst infectious disease we've ever faced. Um, but immunity can wane. Uh, and certainly one of the things that, that we've been talking about for years uh, in regards to monkeypox was, listen, yes, lower overall case fatality rates in smallpox, not quite as transmissible, but we may not have the luxury of that immune protection that we held so near and dear to us for many years because new generations haven't gotten vaccinated and older generations are probably seeing quite a bit of waning from when they were vaccinated. Now, by the way, and, and maybe you can clear this up because as I understand there are, I don't know if there are two strains or two versions of monkeypox. Yeah. One is, is more serious than the other. Can, can you explain that? Yeah, so there's, there's basically what we call two different claims, right? So they're, they, they basically come from the same ancestral virus, but, uh, but they certainly behave uh, differently when we look at them uh, in regards to characterizing, uh, you know, what, what their behaviors are in, in, a, in a laboratory setting. So my, my initial work on high containment viruses was, was, you know, looking and keeping apart differences between these two clades. We have the Central African clade, you know, 1 to 10% case fatality rate certainly can produce severe disease in, in patients uh, that, that are infected, although it, it, it is, you know, fairly commonly still mild. Um, and then we have the West African clade, which is predominantly more mild uh, than uh, than the Central African clade, not as transmissible, 
um, and, and was what was responsible for 2003 in the U.S., which you know also uh, you know uh, you know took away any uh, any potential for fatalities, um, which we, uh, we we didn't see during that period. So. Um, you know, right now it looks like these cases, uh, like at least the ones from the UK, have originated uh, based on uh, movement from Nigeria, so likely the West African clade, um, but can still cause serious disease, especially in those that have uh, underlying conditions or who are immunocompromised. So, you know, it's it certainly we're, we are not out of the the woods by by any stretch with this, but we we just have to remain cautious. Right. And in the meantime, I mean, look, obviously, there are still stockpiles of the the smallpox vaccine. There is a a vaccine that was developed specifically for monkeypox. You know, we're not at the point, obviously, where we need to to roll those out on a widespread basis. But maybe we start thinking at some point about at least even healthcare workers or a more targeted approach, depending on where we're seeing outbreaks. How, How do we approach that side of it, you think? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think you approach it by by getting certainly uh, much smarter people than me uh, at, at the table to, to discuss this. But I think part of it is it's all based on risk assessment, right? So the UK is moving ahead uh, with, with some of their ring uh, or some of their uh, vaccination of, of close contacts. Um, that makes sense because we know the vaccine can be given uh, post exposure and still provide really good protection. There's also a couple of antivirals that are available. Uh, that that FDA had authorized uh, the last few years. They work fairly well. Um, So we're in a much different place than we were with COVID. I think now the big thing is, um, when do you start rolling out vaccine into those those people that are highly vulnerable? And and that's got to be based, again, on the local epidemiology that you're seeing for cases in your particular region and whether you're starting to see a pickup in, in local transmission. So what are you going to be watching for then in the days and weeks ahead? What's going to give us an indication of, of how this is playing out? Yeah, there's a couple things, right? I mean, one, it's it's still it's going to be shedding spotlight again on the fact that this is an ongoing problem uh, in Central and West Africa. So we, we've got to get our, our heads together and appreciate, you know, preparedness and, and response not only applies to us, it applies to everywhere in the world, and we need to do a better job in that regard. The next thing is really it's going to be watching what happens uh, in the uh, local epidemiology. We're undoubtedly going to see more cases that are identified in different regions of the world. Um, Whether or not those manifest into uh, local transmission chains is going to be really critical. And if they do, how quickly uh, those, those chains can get contained. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.